the American Teilhard Association podcast features conversations and interviews which explore the life, thought, and vision of mystic scientist Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. We express our gratitude to Dalesford Abbey in Paley, Pennsylvania for allowing us to use their space and equipment in making this episode possible. Today's episode features Dr. Joshua Canzona, Ph.D. Joshua is currently serving as the Associate Ombudsman at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where he acts as a confidential and alternative dispute resolution resource for over 40,000 students, faculty, and staff. Here, he also teaches graduate courses on comparative mysticism, Muslim-Christian dialogue, and religion and art at the Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Dr. Canzona is also a board member of the American Teilhard Association. Welcome everyone to episode three of the American Teilhard Association podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Joshua Canzona. Josh, thanks so much for being with us today. Happy to be here, thank you. Absolutely, and uh, you've come up from Chapel Hill to Pennsylvania to give a presentation for the American Teilhard Association and the Institute for Religion and Science at Chestnut Hill. Uh, so. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about what you're going to be presenting on and a little bit about where you come from and your background? Sure, sure. Uh, that's a lot of questions. Uh, yeah, and maybe, maybe if you prefer to do one before the other, it might be more natural progression. Uh, so, let's see. Yeah. Um, well, the presentation is, is based on um, my dissertation work. I, I completed a doctorate at Georgetown okay. uh, back in 2018, and um, the dissertation is a comparative study of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin and uh, Muhammad Iqbal. Iqbal um, is sort of the intellectual father of Pakistan and uh, is much venerated in that part of the world. Uh, Iqbal is uh, a Muslim thinker. And I think I, I realized the other day I was working on this presentation and I, it's, it's about one-third of one chapter of the dissertation and it still takes me over an hour just to talk about it. Right. And that's with, uh, with cutting some out. Mm -hmm. um, but the substance of the presentation is it's that same comparative study and also some implications uh, for artificial intelligence mm. and um, kind of contemporary issues in, in science and technology, uh, both research and ethics. Uh, particular emphasis is on artificial intelligence and also um, this thing called IIT, or Integrated Information mm -hmm. Theory, uh, which has to do with consciousness. So okay. we're looking at... Uh, Iqbal, Tayar, consciousness, and then um, integrated information theory, artificial intelligence. So that's a whole lot for 45 minutes, but we're going to do our best. Yeah, that's some heavy stuff. I like it, though. I'm excited. Uh, so can I just ask you about your experience at Georgetown, Georgetown being a Jesuit institution? Um, did you come to know Tayar before going to Georgetown, or was that part of the Jesuit influence of being a student there? Well, I think... I think there's a lot of me that's part of it. That's the Jesuit influence. Okay. I, mean, I can't separate out anymore um, what, what came from other sources. And I'll answer your other question as well, That you know, a little bit about me. Um, so I'm from North Carolina. That's okay. where I live now, but that's also uh, where I was born. And um, I was born in a town called Mount Airy, which is the basis for Mayberry um, of Andy Griffith show fame. Oh, okay, cool. And uh, when I was little, we were, we were quite poor. My mother... Um, you know, was on welfare and things like that. And so I, I think, I, I, I don't know, there's something, I don't want to psychoanalyze myself, but there's something in this that is um, a desire for, for consistency hmm. and, I don't know, a 
holistic way of looking at things that, um, you know, I think primed me for an interest in Teilhard. Mm. Uh, but first introduced, I went to college at uh, Loyola, New Orleans, so another mm -hmm. good Jesuit school. And I'm, I'm convinced, I don't remember the exact moment, but I'm convinced uh, I first heard about Teilhard there. Okay. Uh, I certainly became interested at that time in um, Christian mysticism. Mm -hmm. And since I approached Teilhard as, as a Christian mystic, um, you know, I think that's where the desire to learn mm -hmm. more really took root. Mm -hmm. uh, but at Georgetown, yeah, um, the Jesuits there had an interest in Teilhard. We talked about that. Um, there are library materials, archival materials at Georgetown on Teilhard. Sure. So that's where I, I began to really cultivate sort of a deeper knowledge. Mm, that's awesome. And that's interesting that you say that you initially approached Teilhard as a Christian mystic. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking, like, how did I approach Teilhard? I, I need to take some time to think about that, you know, because he's um, so multidimensional that you could approach him from so many different uh, perspectives mm -hmm. and, um, you know, uh, vocations or whatever you want, understandings, right? Uh, very interesting. Awesome. So um, that was your first encounter with Tarot was at some point within your Jesuit education. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just thinking back to my own experience and how I later found out that my um, sophomore of high school year um, honors English teacher wrote his master's thesis on Tarot. And then, you know, when he found out years later, I was doing my graduate work on Teilhard. Um, he's like, oh, this is all because of me. And here I'm thinking back, well, it very well could have been, you know, because of just how his thought kind of begins to permeate your thought and your way of understanding the world and your way of explaining the world. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's a very interesting um, thought that maybe it was even younger when you were at Loyola that you, you know, were influenced in some way by his name or uh, teaching. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think the point you're making about how we view or how we read Teilhard is, is really important. Mm -hmm. That um, there are different lenses that you can, different ways of seeing, right, mm -hmm. that you can bring to Teilhard. And so some people uh, come to his work and, you know, I think they're really looking at it um, through an interest in science. Mm -hmm. You know, how, mm -hmm. how did he... Um, you know, think through the scientific problems of his day. That's right. And so that's that's where they put a lot of the weight. And I, I think others are very interested in process theology or process thought. Mm -hmm. And so they're really, you know, looking at Teilhard in that context. Mm -hmm. And like I said, for me, um, I think the best way to read him for me is is in the tradition of Christian mysticism. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think those are the primary questions, and that that's what helps me, I think, best understand him. Yeah, especially you were saying you you know don't want to psychoanalyze yourself, but it's coming from this desire for wholeness and a holistic way of seeing the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. That, that that's a very um, insightful um, nugget there. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of people are hungry for that right now. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because um, we're living in a world of bifurcation, where you have to choose a side, and if you don't choose a side, then you're being accused of. It's like whoa, 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 whoa. Like we need to step back take a deep breath and like see the big picture here and how is this all held together for sure. Um, so, you know, in approaching him as a Christian mystic, um, was that influential at all in your interest um, within uh, studying Islam and Christianity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it, it, it was influenced in that way. My interest in Islam is, um, my primary focus is Sufism or Islamic mysticism mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would say that same search for wholeness, the um, the reading of the drama of the cosmos in a sense of emanation from God and then return to God. Mm -hmm. uh, you find this in Islam as well. And uh, so I think engaging the Sufis really, 
deepened my desire to um, explore Christian mysticism. So it works sort of in a cycle. Sure. And uh, also it gave me you know, sort of additional knowledge that, that helped me, I think, better understand Teilhard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is there any uh, thing written by Teilhard that shows any sort of connection or awareness between um, his Christian tradition and the Islamic faith? Uh, not a whole lot. Uh, Teilhard, in his biography, he, he had uh, lived in Cairo for, I think, three years mm-hmm. as part of, if I'm not mistaken, what Jesuits call their regency, okay. part of their formation. And he was a, a teacher there, a high school teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so he does, there are writings, Letters from Egypt, I, I think is the, the title of the mm-hmm. collection of letters as a volume, where he talks about his experiences. But he, he was very young, and um, what, what you read there is it's interesting. It's, very, it's mixed. Uh, there are times when he uh, is somewhat disparaging, and there are other times where he says, for instance... Um, on observing Muslims returning from the Hajj, the pilgrimage, mm-hmm. uh, he talks about the, the sort of the sentiment and beauty of that moment because there's such reverence mm-hmm. for those who had made this journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's early in Tayar's life when he was quite young, and then uh, there are some later writings as well where he talks about um, reformers in the Muslim tradition. Essentially, he says that there are Muslims who think the same way he does, okay. that they're looking for progress, they're looking toward the future, mm-hmm. and they're looking for ways to um, uh, marry contemporary concerns with religion. Okay. And I, for me, I think the kind of um, reformers he's talking about, I think he's talking about Iqbal, mm-hmm. if not specifically um, at least in a general sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And no, I'm sorry, you said Iqbal was the uh, like intellectual founder of Pakistan? Mm-hmm. Okay, so not like in a political sense, but more of the uh, the brains behind that kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, yeah. He, he, Iqbal, um, he's a fascinating person. So I think anybody who's interested in Tayar should, should do some reading about Iqbal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would start with Wikipedia, but mm-hmm. um, if you're looking for a monograph, um, there's a text called The Reconstruction of Religious Thought in Islam. Okay. And picking that up is kind of like picking up the human phenomenon. I mean, mm-hmm. You're in for um, bring your coffee. <laughs> uh, it's a challenge. Yeah, it's a challenge. He he was also a poet, and so you can find uh, ah. uh, great volumes of his poetry. Beautiful, you know, long in that tradition of sort of mystic poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, in so far as Iqbal's a mystic, um, he he um, had a vast education. Iqbal he he um, had a law degree. He went to uh, Cambridge. He um, also has a doctorate, I think it was from Munich. Okay. Um, and he had been sort of schooled in Quran and what, what are sometimes called some of the Islamic sciences mm-hmm. as well. Uh, so it, it had been said that he, in his education, had, had been a bridge between East and West for this reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, fascinating person, Iqbal. Yeah, yeah very interesting. Um, so when you went to study Islam from Christianity, it was mostly through that mystical lens from looking at mystical Christianity and mystical Sufism. Um, was there anyone from, or you know, any, um, you know, from anyone from the uh, the church mystics within the church that you had been um, focusing on prior to Teilhard? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say uh, uh, it's a, it's a difficult race, but I would say my favorite Christian mystic is Julian of Norwich. Okay, and. Um, yeah, I think, again, it's, it's the struggle with profound and really challenging questions that excites me. Mm-hmm. And you see that in Julian, who, who lived at a time when um, there were multiple popes, there mm-hmm. was war, there was plague. And, you know, 
in the midst of those really difficult moments, um, you know, her thought for me and her, her uh, writing is filled with hope and, mm-hmm. and optimism. And you, you see that with Tayar as well. Yeah, yeah. Even, and here, here's the thing about Tayar, I want to say this, make sure I don't forget to say it, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, he's sometimes um, accused of being too optimistic yeah. or, or sort of um, naive. And I understand where that accusation comes from, but he, he's a person who served in the trenches of World War I. Yeah. And I think someone who, who lived that life, you have to take them very, very seriously if they tell you they're optimistic still. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see that in Julian. I see it in Tayar as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do not know Julian nearly as well as I know Tayar, but um, you know her maxim of all will be well is, of course, uh, quite ubiquitous. Mm. And I think that's an excellent point that you make about Tayar being in the trenches in World War One. He's a stretcher bearer. Um, yeah, you know the stories of him running out to retrieve his fallen brothers, you know, under machine gun fire and stuff like that. Um, it takes you war can you know from especially, um, you know, more, um, more recent, like, veterans of the um, Iraq and Afghanistan wars have, you know, shared about their experience, and, um, you know, I've heard uh, some people say something to the effect of, um, you know, I, I don't know if, you know, like, God exists or not, but I have seen superhuman things performed by people, you know, under the duress of combat and all hellfire breaking loose, you know, and I've also seen demonic things that people do. But, you know, I have seen this um, element of the human person come out that is superhuman, that is what we might describe as being divine, because it just goes so beyond itself, right? And, um, yeah, when you're light-haired and you're living that life of struggle that persisted beyond the war, too, right? That was just really kind of what, um, like, shook him loose and cracked him open from his old way of thinking into this new, more cosmic vision. Um, It really was kind of a, a baptism of fire for him. Um, and that, you know, the perpetual metaphor throughout his work, right, of fire, um, was that this is not going to be easy, but it's going to mold you and mold that vision of the world for something that is full of hope and full of life and ultimately fueled by that divine fire of love. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a lot for people, you know. Um, that's a lot for people to hold that in balance with all the struggle that they see around them. And... Like you said, for someone to have been through, someone in that generation to have been through the war like that and still have that hope is a very important message to take from that. Yeah, um, I, think, I think that's right. And to me, in some ways, that, that suggests, um, I, I don't know the truth of it, but the seriousness of it, that uh, this seems to be part of religion to me, is um, to make bold claims like this. Mm-hmm and challenging claims mm-hmm. that are difficult to reconcile at times. Mm-hmm. And hope can be that way. Um, but, but without it, what would we do? Right, and it's also something, you know, in terms of um, religious practice and entering into, really entering into a mystical space, like you're talking about studying uh, mystical Christianity and Islam. Um, it takes you beyond rationality. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes you beyond your ability to express that vision sometimes to... So it's like when you come back from that space and you try and share that with others, they're like, what drug are you on? Or, you know, you're crazy or something like that. Or, mm. you know, you need to get more sleep or something. Yeah. But um, it's within, like you said, the work of people like Iqbal who are poets too, mm. that this is able to be captured. And I've always said that about Tara too. I've found him to be a poet just in how, even in a scientific text, the way it, he writes it sometimes, it's just so beautiful and it flows. Yeah. Um, 
I, I just last night I was reading some Iqbal, some poetry, and okay. then I looked at Tayar immediately afterward. Mm -hmm. and you're exactly right that um, his work is poetry in the best sense. Mm -hmm. and some people use that to disparage Tayar, but I, I think um, it's quite the opposite that when you're looking through that mystical lens, you see that poetry is what we do when, um, when we need to express something that stretches the boundaries of language. Mm. Uh, poetry can make that possible. Absolutely. And that's the kind of ideas we're talking about. Yeah, poetry, music, art, right? Yeah. Exactly. So you're talking about stretching the boundaries of language, um, and it certainly stretches my cognitive boundaries, but um, you had mentioned that part of your work focuses on AI or artificial intelligence and mm -hmm. um, integrated information theory, which is something to do with that. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I'm, I'm definitely speaking above my pay grade now, so I think I'll just turn it over to you. But you know, can you explain how that... Um, and maybe explain for our audience just in, in simple as simple as, you can, as it can be done what AI is uh, and um, maybe an example of you know a common example that people might interact with already and then how that integrates into your work. Well, the the problem is it's above my pay grade too, so, but <laughs> I, I will I will try. Um, and even when I listen to the people like Lex Fridman and stuff explain it that work with machine learning, I'm like, do they even know what they're talking about? So yeah. Well. Yeah, I think the distinction I, I, I would draw first off is between um, you know, intelligence and consciousness. And a lot of this is drawn from um, this, this work in IIT, the Integrated Information Theory, and um, scientists like, um, uh, there's a man named Tononi, there's also uh, Christoph Koch. Uh, who are doing work in this space really around um, the study of consciousness. And they're contemporaries right now? They are contemporaries okay. working right now. Koch, uh, I believe, works for the Allen Institute, um, which is asking all sorts of big scientific questions. Uh, for those who are interested, there, he has um, two recent books. One is kind of an autobiography uh, called Consciousness, Confessions of a, um, I think it's Romantic Reductionist. Mm -hmm. And then his more recent book is The Feeling of Life Itself. Mm -hmm. So you're thinking of consciousness as the feeling of life itself. But with AI, uh, you know, I think that those words are used to describe a, a variety of phenomena, right? Mm -hmm. And some of it is, is machine learning or, you know, computers that sort of process and work through data and then reach new kinds of conclusions based on that data. Mm -hmm. So in the sense of, you know, massive computations of, say, insurance claims or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and there's all kinds of reasons. I, I think you see this a lot right now in science media or technology media to have varying levels of alarm about how those um, computations work. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, you know, social media right now has so almost said infected, affected our political <laughs> space. Old Freudian slip. Yeah. Hmm. And, um, you know, these social media algorithms that, that control, you know, what rises to the top of your news feed sure. or what you see when you look at you know, Facebook or what have you, uh, there's a certain sense in which people might call that AI. Mm -hmm. And it's it can be worrisome mm -hmm. because it can really affect, um, you know, the way people perceive and think through the world, it affects their way of seeing mm -hmm. in Teardian terms. Mm -hmm. um, and there are those who use the language of radicalized, that these, right. these kind of algorithms would lead you down a certain path uh, to, to being more extreme. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, you know, one dimension of AI is, is how these um, algorithms are used and, and the uh, consequences. Mm -hmm. 
And some of that is, is the kind of data that goes into the algorithm. If the data itself is bad, then perhaps the result is bad as mm -hmm. well. Uh, so there's ethical questions around that. Now, what I'm thinking more about uh, tonight in this lecture and, and sort of generally for, um, as a future direction in my dissertation has to do with the question of, of could we have an AI that's self-aware, that has its own um, depth, its own within, mm -hmm. essentially its own consciousness. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> answering that question in a definitive way, I think we're a long way from it. Mm -hmm. My understanding of the science is that, for instance, step one might be mapping the human brain in a really minute way. And uh, we're still working on mice and worms. Right. Uh, so there's some, some, some time to go before this consciousness is mapped. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have to ask yourself, what is consciousness? So uh, integrated information theory has an answer to that question. It holds that, well, it's, it's in the title. Consciousness is um, information in the sense of, of differentiation. It is integrated in the sense of it's, it's holistic. So if you imagine the human brain is, is very deeply integrated and the human brain in a conscious state is different than all the other possible conscious states, mm -hmm. so there's, there's a high degree of differentiation. Okay. And when the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, this theory holds that, that, that the result is consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, at a minute level for, for perhaps some kind of computer, simple computer, and then at a much more profound level for the human being. Mm. So that's the what. Mm -hmm. Now, if, if that is the what, could we imagine a computer that does the same? Mm. And uh, so that's, that's um, a complex question, but uh, that's, that's how you get there. And that's, I think, how it relates back to Teilhard, this idea of a deepening within. Yeah, I mean, the, the, all those um, concepts that you were just describing were very Teilhardian to me, and just the way that you were expressing them. Now, of course, I don't know if someone who doesn't have a background in Taylor would explain them the same way, mm. but, um, I mean, it, it all resonates there in that, you know, this um, notion of the whole being greater than the sum of its parts and consciousness kind of emerging from that um, is, uh, you know, what makes me draw to mind immediately this notion that, um, you know, within Taylor, you know, even the, you know, the rocks to some degree progress a uh, possess a, a consciousness mm -hmm. and it, it's very minuscule in that but that when that evolution is able to flourish and ascend that consciousness ascends that complexity ascends mm -hmm. and then we have humans we have um, you know these discussions about artificial intelligence and this next step that we're taking um, so uh, how does artificial intelligence relate to Teilhard's mm -hmm. notion of the newosphere now that the newosphere is not a um, concept exclusive to Teilhard, but mm -hmm. you know, given that we are discussing his work right now, how would you describe his take on the newosphere with um, your understanding of AI? Yeah. So first, uh, I think you you you, um, uh, you explain a complex thing very well. Okay. So the idea of this this uh, what he calls axis of complexity consciousness, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And as you say, um, Teilhard has this notion that, that at least the constituent bits of consciousness exist in everything. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a rock, a plant, mm -hmm. on up to the human self-reflective consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's a progress. Um, this, by the way, exists in Iqbal as well. Iqbal writes that from the ultimate ego unity, so God, mm -hmm. only ego unities uh, proceed. Wow. So atoms are an ego unity because mm. they come from God. 
And again, on this sort of mystical paradigm, which, which Iqbal, I think, is at least um, aligned toward, um, those eco-unities return to God as well. Wow. So I want to... Yeah, and as someone that has a background, some psychology too, I appreciate that phrase, ego unity, mm -hmm. and like, you know, Teilhard's using these kind of uh, scientific phrases like mega molecules referring to humans and such. Anyway, yeah. so, so I'm sorry. He, call, he talks about consciousness, I think, as a universal molecular property. Te I love Teilhard. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then for Iqbal, he, he does use a little more psychology. For Iqbal, he says consciousness is a level of experience. And uh, psychology is the way we engage it, mm, the same okay. way you might engage biology. Okay. But you asked me about about Tayar and the noosphere. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I mean, I think maybe your your listeners know more about this than I do. But uh, you know, Tayar, of course, the axis of complexity consciousness works in such a way that there's these successive levels of genesis, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine um, kind of rocky bits coming together. And you have geogenesis, which is you know, the formation of a planet. And then, you know, on that planet, you may have um, the, the creation of life. You know, maybe there's a meteor crater, and, and sort of in that space, life is born, and you have biogenesis, mm. which now covers the planet and life. So you have a sphere around a sphere. And then from there, uh, through evolution, you have deepening degrees of consciousness all the way to the point of human uh, self-reflective consciousness. Mm -hmm. So you have thought, you have psychogenesis, and then potentially noogenesis, which is this notion, if I understand it correctly, that uh, consciousness is, might merge together somehow to form something new, something profound, and something for me that's, that's you know, again, I'm looking at it as mysticism, ultimately mysterious. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think there's two ways to read it. One way, and, and not that they're totally separated, but one way of reading this is to say this, this is the mystical body of Christ. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think my, my um, affection might be with that reading, which is a bit uh, more mysterious. But there are others who look at this and say, well, this is, you know, the Internet is the beginning of this. Mm -hmm. that people are connected uh, through the Internet and uh, maybe through uh, enhanced technologies, that connection will work deeper still. Mm. And so thus, you know, human technologies may be part of the vehicle that leads us to this kind of planetary consciousness. Mm -hmm. Now, would AI be a part of that in different ways? I think absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about the future of technology, AI is going to be part of it. Would AI as intelligence be part of it? Sure algorithms and so forth right would AI as its own consciousness be a part of it I, I would have to leave that an open question it's, mm -hmm. it's so speculative mm -hmm. uh, but I will say this that if you look at consciousness as an extension of the divine and I think Teilhard does mm -hmm. that it's this working out of this this axis that really is truly related to divine love mm -hmm. but it's this expression of, of the divine um if you have an AI that has self-awareness or some kind of, uh, of its own conscious awareness, then is that too a divine expression? And if the answer is yes, does that change the way that we, we think and look at AI in an ethical sense? Mm. Now, we're talking decades, centuries off, perhaps. Right. And maybe it's not possible. Mm -hmm. But I think the question is a really interesting one. Mm -hmm. And you see it differently through that Teilhardian lens. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow, that, that's a lot. I, I'm, I'm still kind of like thinking about some of those earlier points you made now. 
um, that you really kind of expanded upon them in an answer. So thank you so much for that. Sure. Um, this is something I'm going to have to go back and listen to it a couple times, I think. Um, AI is such a fascinating thing for me because um, it's, uh, it's exciting, it's scary, it's mysterious, like you said. Um, and um, uh, you had said something just a few minutes ago about consciousness is coming together, like a, a multitude of consciousness, right? Are there consciousness is or it's just consciousness? And there's all these different expressions maybe of it. And we're seeking some unity. I'm just, you know, kind of waxing yeah, poetic right now. What a great question. Yeah. Um, open again to, to many different answers. It's, it's a great problem in philosophy, this idea of, um, have we used the word panpsychism yet? Because Not yet, that's, no. that's, that's This idea that consciousness is, is everywhere. Mm. Is, is sometimes called panpsychism. This is like Phil Goff and stuff like mm -hmm. that? Yeah, okay, all right, nice. And it has a long history in, in philosophy. Okay. Um, and it had, uh, it's had different moments of ascendancy. Mm -hmm. uh, right now is probably not one of them, but uh, <laughs> there are voices, mm -hmm. um, and, and very serious scientific voices, which are taking it seriously once more. Mm. But they are, I think, ultimately, as a panpsychist, this idea that consciousness is, is um, ubiquitous. Sure, sure. Iqbal as well, for the okay. reason I said. Um, so, you know, one way to look at this is, is the problem of panpsychism, to say, you know, there, there are those who have pointed out that consciousness can't be anywhere because I know I'm me and I know you're you. And if consciousness were spread out across everything, where would I begin and, and, and end? And where mm -hmm. would you begin and where would you end? It, it would all just sort of be, you know, we'd be, we'd be in, like, the water of consciousness. Right. Um, but Taylor answers that in the sense that um, there are aggregates of consciousness or mm -hmm. a, a deepening within, mm -hmm. which could explain how it's everywhere, but also at the same time, you know, you and I as, as, as aggregates, as centers, mm -hmm. um, still have, you know, a, a bounded reality for our, for mm -hmm. our minds. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's one way of looking at it. But I think uh, maybe an even more interesting way of looking at it is that it's the problem of, of the one and the many. Mm -hmm. That, you know, again, um, we're looking at consciousness as potentially as an extension of the divine that, you know, there may be many right now, but the ultimate destiny of all things is to return to God. Right. Right. Well put. Well put. Yeah, I, I, I still feel like when we get into these discussions of consciousness and AI and intelligence and all this, it for me at least, um, makes most sense when it is boiled back down into that mystical language of, um, you know, unity and love and connectivity. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the human person being a center. And with that mention, I immediately thought of Teilhard's, I think he calls it his existential dialectic on happiness, where he says that there are three stages um, in our progression here. And the first is centralization, in which we acknowledge ourselves as centers or we might say in psychological terms as ego and there's decentralization in which we extend beyond ourselves in some way and he says this might be through a heartbreak or something like that we realize that you know the world is bigger than us in some way or through service too he says you know by giving of ourselves to a larger cause uh, but third most importantly is hyper centralization or super centralization in which we as consciousness is, or consciousness, however you want to look at that, are transfixed on a higher reality, a higher dimensional space, if you will, in you know that reality of the cosmic Christ. Mm -hmm. um, 
So that was something that immediately came to mind when you use that language of center, which again kind of goes back to where we started here with just like how uh, that language and thought of terror kind of just like seeps into your usage of terms and whatnot. But I just found that very cool. So it it does it. it Tayar Tayar himself acts as a lens through which you can view different problems and mm-hmm. questions. Mm-hmm. And you know I think the you know, part part of the one of the signs of a profound thinker is, is just that that you mm. can take these Teardian concepts and, and look at different questions and come to really, um, if not answers, even more exciting secondary questions. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it can really there's a coherence to it, an explanatory power, and he's he's good to think with. Yeah. And um, yeah, exactly so. Yeah. Well, we just recently had uh, Dr. Laura Elo who presented at Chestnut Hill and. Uh, she talked about these salons that you know were had at the time that Tarrant was a part of, and how critical that was for nurturing his thought and the thought of his contemporaries. And um, yeah, a good, good partner to think with. Um, so now uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about your work at the college and um, how you've been able to integrate Tarrant there. So you do some teaching along with your administrative work, is that right? Uh, I do. I well. So just a few years ago, I was an assistant dean and a professor at Wake Forest okay. uh, School of Divinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I taught for several years um, exclusively graduate students okay. who, were, who were pursuing a master in, in, in divinity. Uh, so we're looking at going into you know, full-time ministry mm-hmm. or sometimes part-time ministry. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I did, uh, I taught courses on comparative mysticism and uh, a number of courses on Islam. And in the comparative mysticism course, I always included um, at least one or two weeks on Tayar. And, and my observation is that um, people are universally fascinated. If you're interested okay. in, in pursuing a life in ministry mm-hmm. um, in, in the contemporary frame, I think reading Tayar for the first time is, is often illuminating mm-hmm. and, and really exciting. Okay. So I, I think they're... Um, I think there's a lot of room for students, for young people generally, to be introduced to Tayar, mm-hmm. and uh, I think they'll take to it. Mm-hmm. I really mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's always my thought: is how is um, the younger generation going to receive him? And puts um, a bit of uh, an impetus on us to, you know, yeah. relay that message on. Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's, a, it's an obligation, I think. Mm-hmm. So, is there um, any one, you know, uh, I, I don't know, you know, what your you know, relaying to your students what you're teaching them about Tayar, but, um, you know, is there any one thing they really kind of resonate with, or is it just, you know, his overall kind of thought and body of work that is relevant to them? Yeah, I, I would say, um, I think they resonate a lot with his understanding of the relationship between matter and spirit, mm-hmm. that, you know, you can, you can pursue um, the divine without discarding the material world. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, many students right now, and I think people generally, are concerned with questions of human suffering, questions of uh, justice. Mm-hmm. That this is the primary concern among students right now. Mm. And perhaps, perhaps this was always so, or it, it rises and falls at different moments, but now, now is indeed one of those moments. And so, looking at... Tayar, I mean, there's, there's obvious, obviously implications for the environment. Mm-hmm. There's implications for, you know, how can I engage the material world um, in a way that leads back to God? Mm. There's a message about um, the importance of love 
love as an attractive energy bringing us together and that you and I as conscious entities can play a role in this kind of building up of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, of course, there is uh, an example. Teilhard works as an exemplar of how research, science, and religion uh, can work together. Mm -hmm. These things need not be opposed, uh, and they need not pretend as if they're wholly separate categories either, but they can be interrelated in a way. That's right. Such that you know, through science, uh, you come to a more profound understanding of the divine, and through uh, spirituality, mm-hmm. you you come to deepen the way that you conduct your science. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, so for all of these reasons, you know, these these important contemporary issues, environmentalism, research, science, justice, and how we should be with each other. All of these themes are present in Tayar in really creative, exciting ways, mm-hmm. and students pick up on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very well said. Very eloquently said. Thanks. Thanks, Josh. Um, well, uh, I know this isn't a, a question that we had discussed ahead of time here, but um, based on the way that you read Tayar, your lens or lenses that you you know, approach him through, um, if he were around today in the physical form, what do you think he might be most kind of enamored by or, you know, drawn to? I know, you know, like his time, like, you know, something like the particle accelerator was something he had the opportunity to see and it was really, you know, captivated him. So, um, you know, like like I said, based on your lenses and, you know, your experiences with AI and mysticism and all that, I mean, what what do you think he might be into? That's a great question that I'm not qualified to answer. I think... um, (laughs) I think that... Uh, I mean, I have my biases, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, there's so much happening right now in the world of science that's just, uh, you know, unbelievably exciting. I, I remember, I, um, for a time, I lived close to MIT, and I had friends who, who were students there. And I, I have you know, very little background in science, but mm. they would take me around and show me their different you know, labs and what they were working on. Yeah. And um, it was just incredible. So I think Tayar would be... Like a kid in a candy store with all of the uh, you know, the different possibilities right now, but I, I tell you one of the questions that occurred to me just recently is um, the internet's one thing, but also vaccines and sort of the the speed at which vaccines for COVID were developed mm-hmm. and the work that's being done to um, share that knowledge around the world and share that access to the mm-hmm. vaccine. Mm-hmm. You know, I think these kinds of you know, global forces would be really interesting to him. Right. You know, what what forces are there that bring us together as as you know one humanity, mm-hmm. uh, living for e- each other, and uh, you know thinking and working as one. Mm-hmm. And that could be vaccines. It could be the internet, and in, in, in an idealistic sense, uh, I, I think there are many such forces. Uh, and he, being the relentless optimist, he would always look for the good, the love, the joy in yeah. these things and not focus um, uh, so much on the bad as we as we are sometimes tempted to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very well said. Well, Josh, thanks you so much for being on a podcast today and for sitting down for a conversation. I hope this has been a nice little warm-up for you for your presentation later this evening at Chestnut Hill. Be looking forward to that. Um, would you want to share with our audience uh, how they can maybe get in touch with you or maybe read some of your work or access your work? 
Uh, sure. I think, you know, one way would be to send me an email. Mm -hmm. uh, my last name is Canzona, and uh, I, I work now in conflict resolution at, at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you Google Canzona, Joshua Canzona, you'll find me. Uh, but Canzona at unc.edu. Uh, send me a note. I'll be happy to chat. And... Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's the best way. Hopefully, I'll be getting a book out in the next year or two, and then uh, uh, I'll come back. Nice. We'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Care to give a little preview or? Well, it's it's going to be a look at um, uh, Tayar and Iqbal, mm -hmm. and not just on consciousness, but also on sociality. You asked me uh, earlier in this conversation about Iqbal as the intellectual father of Pakistan, mm -hmm. and um, Iqbal was an elected politician. Okay. A couple of points. And so he, he looked at, um, you know, some of these ideas that Tayar has as well, this idea of can we come together and build a new community. For Muslims, it would be the Ummah, the global Muslim community. Mm. Um, so we're going to be looking at that sociality as well, the, the consciousness, but also um, the social life of human beings, mm -hmm. and the different ways we can find ourselves uh, coming closer together in search of answers to the, the common questions we face. So that's going to be some of what the book's about, and um, yeah, hopefully soon. Great. Thanks so much for being with us today, Josh. Lots to look forward to. We'll have to have you back when the book's ready and ready to come out. You can give it a nice pitch on here and uh, tell our listeners about it. Hopefully by then we've recorded many more podcasts and um, have a great uh, you know, uh, listening catalog for people, so we'll keep people tuned in. Uh, so until next time, thank you everyone for tuning in to the American Tayard Association podcast. We'll see you next time.